Well, brethren, would you take your copy of the scripture and turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And before we read this well-known passage together, let us turn to our Heavenly Father and ask Him for His wisdom to teach us. Let's pray. O gracious and most holy Lord, we pray tonight as we come to posture our souls underneath Your Word that You would speak for Your servants are listening. Would You take Your truth and press it firmly to our hearts and use what You communicate here to shape our view of who You are and the things that we should believe about You. For we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word if you're able. Again, Psalm 23. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless us with it. Brethren, you may be seated. While John 3.16 may be the most well-known verse in the Bible, Psalm 23 is certainly the most recognizable chapter. And though our culture is increasingly hostile to Scripture, even godless Hollywood still reverberates with Psalm 23 in funeral scenes. Indeed, due to this psalm's mention of death, it's probably been used in the face of death more than any other biblical text. And while believers have drawn comfort from this psalm for 3,000 years, the popular recognition of this psalm doesn't necessarily mean there's a true appreciation of what it conveys. I think even Christians fail to adequately comprehend the beauty of these words. We've noted throughout our study of the Psalter that in book one of the Psalms, the theme is conflict. And yet, even though Psalm 23 is quoted at funerals, many don't think of it as a conflict psalm. It's almost regarded as an idyllic pastoral poem where the world is beautiful and blossoming, everything is coming up roses, and no trouble seems to be present. However, to read the psalm like that would be to grossly misunderstand it. This psalm is most definitely a psalm for conflict. In fact, Three enemies of the soul stand out in the text. First, there is the enemy within, the believer's own sin, for which we need God's restorative grace. He restores us, verse 3. Second, there's the king of terrors, 
death itself in verse 4. And then third, there's a world of enemies who surround us as the people of God in verse 5. What David is doing is he's showing us there are threats on every side. But as the threats confront us, and we are in constant conflict in this life, we need not despair. Because in this world of trouble, we have a faithful companion, a personal caretaker who attends to us through them all. And this companion is not some lackey in David's royal retinue. It is God, the covenant God Himself. So when David is overwhelmed, supremely sensible of his weakness, he knows that not merely an impersonal rock, fortress, or strong tower, as comforting as those images might be, are with him. Rather, he has a stooping sovereign, a personal God, who goes with him to shepherd his soul. And as David conveys his love of this God, we have in this psalm a personal confession. Interestingly, though it is a psalm for conflict, it's not filled with desperate pleas or anguished petitions. In fact, there are no requests in this psalm at all. It's rather the confession of a relationship. David is describing who the Lord is to His people. And there are two prevailing metaphors here. A good shepherd and a gracious host. Now we're going to spend four of those verses looking at a good shepherd. It's going to take us a little longer. And I'm always conscious when I preach on Psalm 23, which I've done several times, is I I never seem to be able to get it right. There's so much in this psalm. Uh, So bear with me as we dig in and see the mercy of our God to His people. First, think with me about a good shepherd. Verses 1-4. to Now, Now, John Owen says, and I've frequently quoted this, unacquaintedness with our mercies, that is, our privileges, is our sin as well as our trouble. Unacquaintedness with our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. What does Owen mean by that? He means as believers, we frequently fail to see the lavish blessings that God has bestowed upon us, and therefore we fail to bask in the Father's love. Well, David helps us in that fight by starting this psalm with a mind-boggling assertion, a confession of the believer's greatest privilege. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. Every word here is amazing. The first word is Yahweh, the name that Moses was given at the bush, a name that reflects the Lord's covenant mercies. Yahweh is God's first name, if I can put it that way. And it highlights several things about him. Sovereignty, his unceasing power. He's the great I am. Constancy, he never changes, and He's faithful. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus will bring that up, saying that He doesn't cease to be their God, and therefore there's a resurrection. There's sufficiency in this name that is complete independence. God stands in need of nothing. The bush that's burning doesn't contain God. So the fire is there, but the bush isn't destroyed because God is separate from His creation. And then above all, this name conveys Intimacy. God is a with you 
God. So the first declaration is who God is. He is Yahweh and he is saying to his people, I, the mighty, faithful, unchanging God, am with you. I will be all that you need. I will draw near to you to save you and satisfy you. In fact, it's staggering that David is saying, the God who is from everlasting to everlasting, who inhabits eternity, who is transcendent over all things as creator and sustainer, He is my shepherd. Not He was. At some point in the past, I knew the help of God. No, David is saying right now, this covenant God is attending to me. There is an abiding relationship. I have His care, His love, His faithful watching yesterday, today, and forever. What's one of the greatest sins of Israel throughout their history? It's presumption. Banking on a God that they do not seem to personally know. David doesn't bank on a bygone era as he confesses his faith. Though David's life has been full of trouble and there have been shocking sins that broke communion with God and even drew Yahweh's discipline, David still can confess Yahweh not was, but He is my shepherd. This is a word of assurance to the soul. The Father loves me and is with me. And with that personal language, my shepherd, David is telling us the Almighty God cares for me. He's actively engaged in watching me. He isn't a a distant, unknown deity who isn't paying attention when I'm in trouble. No, He's close. I have fellowship with Him and He hymns me in with His love. I'm surrounded by His steadfast love. Brethren, can you say this? Do you have a personal communion with God? Do we know Him? Not just know about Him. Do we have intimate dealings with Him? Trusting Him, relying upon Him, looking to the Lord as our faithful and near companion. We might see this same personal declaration in how the Apostle Paul speaks of the Lord Jesus. You remember when he's saying in Galatians 2 that he's been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. There's an attachment to Christ. Life lived in dependence upon Christ. There's constant communion with my Savior. This is the believer's confession. Do we have it? Martin Luther famously said that Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. Do you have a personal knowledge of this personal God? David recognizes that while he's a sinner, like a sheep, prone to go his own way, to wander off, though he is weak and helpless and dense and unaware of his danger, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, never stops loving me. And he ensures as he comes to me that I am upheld and well supplied. He is the lover of my soul. He is my defender. And then there's just the image of God being a shepherd. Now consider the work of Shepherding. It was a work that was despised when the children of Israel go to Egypt. Joseph is making sure to tell his family, well, you're shepherds and 
Pharaoh and Egypt, they think all shepherds are abominable. They're despicable people. There's the idea of David himself. Who's with the sheep when Samuel comes to visit his family? David, why? Because he's the youngest. This is a disregarded, unimportant job. Or it's the undesirables. Shepherds can't testify in court in the first century. They're not reliable witnesses. But to the lowly, the angel appears telling them the news of the Savior's birth. This job is one of tireless activity. It's constant. It's attending to animals that do not appreciate you. And the metaphor of enduring love, therefore, is even more striking. How much do we really appreciate all that God does for us? And yet He's constantly attend to us, even though we bite, even though that we're difficult, even though we're constantly going astray. The Lord's attention is with me, watching me, helping me, guarding me. He's willing to stoop and serve me, even in my stubbornness and my silliness. And why does He do this? Because He is committed in covenant mercy. He is the covenant Lord, Yahweh is my shepherd. And because He is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is an, an incredible connection of logic. I shall not want because of who God is. He is the God who cares for me in every way possible. He is all I need. And as we think of the Lord communicating to us that we shall not want, David is saying, I'm not going to lack anything. The psalmist will say later in Psalm 84, no good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. Because the Lord is good and He does good. He delights to give us good gifts. And if He's our covenant God, He's never going to fail to provide for us. In fact, this phrase actually is coming right out of Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 7. When Moses is describing what the Lord did for Israel in the wilderness, Moses says, these 40 years, Yahweh your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Think of what the Lord provided in the wilderness. Bread from heaven, water from a rock, clothes and sandals that didn't wear out, spiritual direction through Moses and Aaron, physical presence as he tabernacled with them. He gave them everything they needed. And he did that even though they doubted him, complained against him, and were afflicted. But David is saying here, Yahweh will provide for me. And it's not just that He will provide for His people generally, it's specific. I shall not want. Brethren, God's care isn't for just a general mass of His people as though He's not paying particular attention to you. No, David is saying, it's for me. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. God sets His love on individual believers that we may go from grace to glory. He gives each and every one of us daily bread. And then He gives us His own Word, which is better than daily bread. He pardons sin. He listens to our cry. He knows our needs. He remembers our weaknesses. When we're afflicted, He is a refuge for us, a mother bird to hide us. He's a God who never forgets us. And as we look back at His faithful shepherding care, say to Jacob, who's the first to call God shepherd, Jacob says at the end of his life, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. When we look at people like Jacob, can't we see who has God failed among his people? When has the Lord's care ever come up short? When has his faithfulness vanished? It hasn't. 
His shepherding care may have thrust us all into situations that we would have never chosen, but even then the Lord has brought His covenant love to us, so there's been no lack with Him. In fact, this statement, I shall not want, really serves as something of a background to what Paul will say in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? If the Father has given His own Son for us, the indescribable gift, what will we lack? What will He hold back? What other need do you have? All we require as we travel through this pilgrim life to the promised land is provided. Think of how the devil tries to paint our God as a God who keeps good things back from you. And think of the biblical confession now in response. I lack nothing. Can you say that in the face of the temptations of the devil? When the world comes to seduce you and tells you you need something else, can you say, Philippians 4, I've learned the secret of contentment, whether it be in plenty or in want, abundance or in need, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. In other words, if I have Jesus, I have all I need. What a glorious confession. Brethren, what a thing to preach to your soul when you're anxious. If Yahweh is your shepherd, He won't let you come up short. He made you His by His grace. His grace is attending you and getting you through the worst. And guess what we're going to see in the psalm? His grace is going to get you all the way home. Well, let's think a little more about this metaphor of the Lord being our shepherd. David's going to describe in verses 2 to 3 five ways in which the Lord shepherds us. And we'll move through these quickly. But look at what he tells us. First in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, what's the most basic need of the sheep? Well, they need food, and the Lord gives it. But notice the place where the Lord leads the sheep to feed. It isn't just any place. In the Judean countryside, sheep were pastured in wilderness lands that received little rainfall. This is not Scotland we're talking about here. Grass was scarce, so you had to keep the sheep on the move in order to lead them to good grazing ground. But here, Yahweh has brought us to green pastures, to a place of ample provision. And then the scene gets even better. For the sheep are so well supplied, so satisfied and secure, that they lie down. Now, we're not farmers, and we probably don't know a lot about sheep, but maybe we know that sheep are skittish creatures. They will not lie down unless if there's even a hint of trouble. They have to be completely safe. But the Lord has taken away every source of difficulty so that they feel secure. Or to put it in the personal language, David is saying, I can rest in Yahweh's care. I'm satisfied and safe. Now, Ezekiel is going to come back to this imagery later and say that our shepherd, the Lord, will bring his Messiah, the Prince of Peace, and he will lie down, make us lie down, with nothing to make us afraid. Ezekiel 37, what a beautiful picture that is. That's an image of glory, isn't it? No threats, no sorrow, no pain, no death, 
no curse. We're not scared of anything. But David is confessing this, not looking for it. He's confessing it in the present life. Right now, Yahweh is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. And how can David say that when trouble is everywhere? When death is a threat and enemies are around me? Because David is saying, look, if I have the Lord, what can man do to me? God is near me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? What does Jesus offer me in this world of danger, toil, and snare? He says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will secure you. Jesus Himself is the bread of life, and if we come to Him, we will never be cast out. And that leads to a second description of the shepherd's work. Verse 2 again, He leads me beside quiet waters, or literally, waters of rest. It's not enough that the sheep have grass. They need water too, and here it is given. Now the picture painted is often misunderstood. The idea isn't a slow-flowing stream. The speed of a stream wasn't usually the concern in Israel. The language instead highlights water by which a sheep can rest. They can take a drink and lie back down. They're nourished by this water so that their rest isn't disturbed. They can thus thrive in this place. Now again, David is drawing on imagery of God with his people in the wilderness. Back in Numbers chapter 10, Moses spoke of Israel going out from Mount Sinai and the ark representing Yahweh going before them and the ark was going out to seek a resting place. Same word as waters of rest. A resting place for them. But David is saying here, what the Lord is for Israel, seeking rest for them, He is for me personally, seeking rest for me. And with all this imagery, I don't think David has in mind merely material provision. For the Lord Himself, as Jeremiah will put it, is the fountain of living waters. The Lord fills us up. He satisfies us in our soul. The Lord meets all of our spiritual needs. And in the metaphors of Scripture, God's Word is described as the food we need to eat. It's honey. It's meat to feed us. It's better than bread. But it's also described as a nourishing stream by which we as a tree are planted. As a river flowing from the Lord that gives life, that sustains. Or how will Jesus put it in John 7? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, in John chapter 6, offers bread. I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 7, offers drink. I am the fountain of living waters. And then in John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down my life for the sheep. Psalm 23 is really telling us of all that Jesus Christ, the shepherd, is to us. What he supplies for us. He will be our rest. He will be our provider. The one who nourishes us and settles us. He is the one in whom we have every spiritual blessing and thereby we lack nothing spiritually if we have the Lord. Brethren, do you see it that way? Are you focused on what the world can offer you? Are you seeing that in Christ you really have everything? Even if you're poor, you're rich. 
But then, back to our psalm, a third thing the Lord does as our shepherd. Verse 3, He restores my soul. This phrase is full of meaning. There are two, two potential ways to understand it. On the one hand, the idea could be that the Lord revives me in the sense of refreshing me. The Lord takes a languishing person and brings strength, encouragement, and consolation. But then on the other hand, it could mean restore in the sense of bringing to repentance. In fact, the verb translated restore is the usual word for repent. The Lord brings back the straying sheep. He converts and then He spiritually restores. So which is it? Is it reviving? Is it bringing to repentance? I don't think we have to choose. In this context, the two meanings actually interact so that the retrieving and reviving of the sheep pictures the complete renewal of the backslidden and ailing believer. Whatever balm is needed for your wounds, whatever comfort for our depressed spirits, whether it be reviving mercy to our cold heart or pardoning grace for the wandering soul, your shepherd is willing to give it. You know, we can look at David's life and see this. We can look at David heading off to kill Nabal because he's being a fool and Abigail intervening and warning him and therefore calling him back, restoring him. We can see of Nathan confronting David when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah. You are the man, David. You deserve to die. And then upon David's confession, Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. God brings David to his senses. He stirs David with repentance and he makes him repent as big as his sin. He writes a song for all of the people of God to sing and we've been singing it for 3,000 years, Psalm 51. How about that for public repentance? Well, Even in that Psalm, Psalm 51, David prays for restoring grace. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. See, David doesn't just want forgiveness. He wants the sweetness of communion with God, grace to swallow up his coldness and misery. And David is seeing, I can't just rouse that up into my heart. Yahweh has to give it. The Lord has to pour out blessings that my heart would be warm to his praise. The Lord has to make me feel gospel comforts. But he's willing to do it. He will uncover our wanderings. He'll lead us back to Him. He'll heal our backsliding. He'll wash our filth. And He'll enliven us with the joy of our salvation. Brethren, He will seek us and restore us. You remember Jesus' parable of the 99 and 1. He leaves the 99 to go seek the one straying. And when the stray is found, what does the shepherd do? He rejoices. This is the tenderness of our God. Now, some of you, some of you might think tonight that the Lord is just sick to death of your weakness and sin. And He's just tired of your wondering heart. And He's ready just to be done with you. And I want you to see what God is really like. He is a restoring God. He's a shepherd who seeks you. He hunts us down with His grace to overwhelm us. And then not only does He restore us, He leads us. Verse 3, the fourth thing. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His namesake. 
the Lord's new direction comes to me to guide me in my life. My shepherd tells me the way I should go. He leads us in the only path he has to give us. It's one of righteousness. Never will the Lord lead us to do something evil. Never will he direct us to violate his word. If you're wondering if that voice inside of your head is telling you that you should go in God's way, compare it to scripture. God will never leave you to do what is wicked. In the hunt for guidance in our world, brethren, we have a guide. And our trouble is we're not paying attention to what the guide has given. He's spoken to us. He's given us a sufficient word that shows us what to believe and what to do. All we need for life and godliness is right here. And he can always be trusted. So are we going to his word as a lamp for our feet? Do we believe that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness? Now, does that mean you'll never face any hardship if he leads you in the paths of righteousness? No, Jesus says that the way that leads to life is one that is hard. But his ways are always good. He leads us through trouble in such a way that he reveals his character to us. Are we listening to the shepherd's voice and delighting to follow him because he'll never deceive us? And then a final thing under this first heading the shepherd does. It's the most intimate of all. And notice how David switches pronouns. In verses 2 and 3, it's Yahweh. He makes, he leads, he restores, he guides. But now it's you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. When we're in danger, facing the very threat of death, the Lord our God doesn't just walk ahead of us. He walks with us. The language is of a companion by your side, holding your hand in frightening moments. And the valley described here is a ravine. It's clearly a place of danger, a place where predators lurk. The wild beasts are seeking the same thing as the sheep, food and water, and they're ready to devour the weak. Thus, David calls this ravine the valley of the shadow of death. And again, David is recalling the children of Israel in the wilderness. Jeremiah 2, 6 The Lord is the one who brought us up from Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of drought and deep darkness. It's the same Hebrew. The land of the shadow of death. Israel went through many seasons of darkness. And that metaphorical phrase can highlight a number of hard situations that are as harrowing as death. But I think David probably means it as a superlative. Situations that rise as high as death, that are as bad as death. And even when death darkens our road, the Word will be with us. Brother, when death comes, that's the moment when we're tempted to fear. In fact, I think Scripture teaches that the root of fear lies in the fear of death. But in the land of deep darkness, the shadow of death, Isaiah 9, maybe you remember your Christmas Verses. In the land of the deep darkness, a light has come. Christ is there in the shadow of death. Our God does not abandon us in the bleakest moments of this fallen world. So David confesses, I will fear no evil, 
for you are with me. Our good shepherd is standing with us in the darkness. And he has tools to comfort us. He has his rod, which is his instrument to defeat the enemy, to strike those assaulting us. And he has his staff, a tool to retrieve the sheep and to direct our steps. And therefore, David is confessing, though he isn't sure how, that with Yahweh close, even death can't win a victory. Do we not understand that we have more confidence to say this psalm than David did when he wrote it? We have seen that death can't win victory because Christ has triumphed over the grave. Jesus appeared in the flesh to defeat Him who held the power of death, that is the devil. And Jesus gives us a certain victory so we can enter the darkness of death and say mockingly, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Because Jesus Christ has liberated us from the fear of death. Death cannot separate even when death must be faced. It is gain. Why? It just brings me closer to my shepherd. So in situations as dark as death, David is saying, we overwhelmingly conquer. What promises these are to us, brethren. We're never going to be abandoned. Can you even imagine greater comfort than this? But then secondly, see with me. Shorter this time. A gracious host. David has one more metaphor. And if, it's, if it could be more intimate, it really is. A host, even a friend. Verse 5. You, the covenant God, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Now, the phrase to prepare a table describes the setting up of a feast. And then at this feast, the believer, who is the guest of the Lord, is treated with honor. But before the honor is given, the lavish gifts are displayed. We're told we're in the context of a banquet. Yet it's a table spread where? In the presence of my enemies. What does that mean? Well, David is reflecting, no doubt, on Israel's experience in the wilderness and his own experience. The Hebrew word translated prepare a table is actually the word used by Moses for setting up the table in the tabernacle for the bread of the presence. And where was that bread first given? In the wilderness. Israel is surrounded by enemies. They've got Egyptians and Amalekites, Edomites, Moabites, the Canaanites, and they're all a threat. However, the Lord is with His people. And the bread of the presence communicates something specific about the covenant God. That He's with His people in His covenant mercies. In the ancient Near East, covenants were sealed with a meal. We see that in Exodus 24 where the Lord calls Moses, Aaron, and the elders up on the mountain to eat and drink in the presence of God. It's a foretaste of the Lord's Supper, but of the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see, Yahweh is pouring out blessings on His people while enemies are all about them. But because they're with the Lord, they have His blessing. And then David could reflect on this in his own life. When Absalom drove David out of Jerusalem and he goes out with death hanging in the air, he leaves barefoot and weeping. He's running to a city called Mahanaim, north of Jerusalem. And he waits for Absalom to come and attack. 
But while David is on the run, three men come to him in 2 Samuel 17, and they bring, I'll read the list, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from the herd. Sounds like the Israelite version of Thanksgiving, doesn't it? David had a feast, a table prepared by the Lord in His grace while he was being hunted by his own son. And it's a reminder to David, yes, your son is trying to kill you, but I am with you and I'm going to bless you. God's covenant blessings are greater than David can conceive. And with these pictures, we have a display of feasting, a head anointed with oil that was a symbol of celebration, and then a cup overflowing. That is, there's no end to the provision. Don't we see this in the images in the ministry of Jesus as well? Think of John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. When the wine runs out and Jesus intervenes, what what happens? They take six stone jars filled to the brim, mind you, and these were huge jars for ceremonial cleansing. And then they're transformed into wine. It's more than you could possibly drink. But it's also a symbol of the fullness of cleansing that Christ provides. Wine in the Old Covenant, the prophets, is a symbol of blessing. And new covenant blessings are being dumped on us by Jesus Christ. Think of the lavish blessings that we have. Count your blessings. Election, calling to life, faith and repentance, justification, cleansing, adoption, sanctification, the hope of glory. This is amazing. And then there's establishment of the Lord's Supper by Jesus. Right with Judas in the midst. With religious leaders on the outside coming to kill Jesus. Jesus speaks of His incredible blessings for His people. His body will be broken, His blood spilt, and what does it do? It brings redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant means our sins are remembered, held against us no more. In this world of trouble, we are showered with blessings even while enemies are around us. That's why the Apostle Paul says when he's talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10, is not the cup we drink the cup of blessing. We have the blessing of God. Do you realize how blessed we are in Christ? Peace with God. Access to God's presence. Abiding in grace. Abounding with a living hope. An inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And yet, the day will come when these enemies will be vanquished and there's only the feast. And that's the image that David turns to as he closes the song. The enemies now encompass us. And these enemies, they threaten to sever us from the presence of God. But will they succeed? No. For David declares, surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness, that steady kindness of God that never ceases to support us, to give us good gifts, even to give us the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Surely goodness and mercy, or or better, chesed, steadfast love, that dogged, determined, unceasing covenant loyalty to us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Now the word translated shall follow is ordinarily a verb to describe a chasing enemy. In Exodus 14, it's used of Pharaoh and his army 
four times as they're pursuing, chasing Israel. So follow is too tame a translation. This is a vigorous verb. It's a chase. The Lord is pursuing us. Yahweh's goodness and steadfast love chase us down. They are, as one has put it, the Lord's two sheepdogs to hound us to heaven. The Lord hunts us down. He overtakes us with His mercies. He sticks with us. And David says He does it all the days of my life. This is a God who holds on to us so that we shall reach our final destination. Are you worried you're going to get home? Are you worried you're going to make it? David is saying, yes, I will because of the pursuing grace of God. And not just that. Not only is His grace going to pursue me all the days of my life so that there's nowhere I can go to get away from it, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That word is filled with so much meaning. Forever. Sin can't win. The curse can't dominate. Enemies threaten. But eternal hope is mine. Yahweh isn't just committed to get me through this short earth. He's committed to get me to the feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb where I can then enjoy my gracious host forever. Brethren, do you see what the Lord is saying? What David is communicating to us in the Scripture? The Lord our God is committed to us through all the troubles of our present life, through death itself, and into the great beyond where death has actually been vanquished. He will keep me forever until I am safely home in His presence. Now the question, of course, as we close the psalm is, to whom is this glorious assurance given? It's for all those who know the Lord as shepherd. Jesus had a striking conversation in John 10. Not only did He declare, I am the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. He said to a group of Jewish religious leaders, you are not my sheep. What was the proof? You don't listen to me. You don't believe me. Do you want this kind of assurance? Or are you resting your soul totally in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you repenting and running to Him as a God who will hound you to heaven and never let you go? And when you get there, it won't be the kind of thing where, okay, she made it. Now, good riddance. No, He, in His very presence, will have communion with us forever and ever and ever. With a God like this, why would you seek the pleasures of this world? May the Lord help us to see who He is and the privileges He's given His people. Let's pray together. Lord, we marvel at this psalm a psalm of great comfort to your people throughout the ages. And we pray, Father in heaven, that we would take it to heart. We pray that you, the God who is our shepherd, would care for us. But more, more, more importantly, we pray we would believe that you shepherd us. For you've given your own son, and what will you withhold if you've given your son for us? So help us to embrace the truth about you and not entertain hard thoughts of you. 
Help us, O Lord, to see your kindness to us and how you're willing to host us, to bring us into your very presence eternally. Lord, may we long for that presence with you and may you keep us going, feeding on your word, nourished by your streams of water until we reach that place of our destination. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.